Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 66 is Jungian analyst, author, and anthropologist, Dr. Manisha Roy. She was born and raised in a small town at the foothills of the eastern Himalayas, at the border of India, Tibet, and Myanmar. After earning a master's degree in geography at the University of Calcutta, she came to the United States and studied anthropology, earning a second master's degree from the University of Rochester and a Ph.D. from the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Roy later went on to Switzerland, where she trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. She is currently in private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she lives with her husband, retired physician and author Dr. Carl von Essen. She has been a training analyst and on the faculty of the C.G. Jung Institute of Boston for 35 years. She has taught both anthropology and analytical psychology at several universities in the United States, India, and Switzerland, and has lectured in 70 cities throughout the world. Dr. Roy writes in two languages and has authored 12 books and nearly 50 articles. Her first book, Bengali Women, originally published in 1976, is frequently used in women's studies courses at various universities and is still in print, now in its second edition. She is co-editor of the book Cast the First Stone, Ethics in Analytic Practice, which looks at the symbolic attitude in the analyst analysan relationship. Her memoir, My Four Homes, brings us into the worlds of her grandfather, her grandmother, her parents, and her own. And her latest book, Women, Stereotypes and Archetypes, published by Chiron in 2019, explores the issue of women's identity across many cultures, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you'll find links to all of Dr. Roy's books, as well as more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, July 8th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Unfortunately, the recording software only captured Dr. Roy's voice today. I apologize. I was having trouble with Audio Hijack. I uninstalled it and reinstalled it and it still didn't work, and I didn't want to keep Dr. Roy waiting any longer than I already had. So I decided to record it a different way. I tested it first. It seemed to be working. And so I went ahead with the recording. All the levels looked fine. And when I went to open the audio file in the editor afterward, I noticed that it only recorded Dr. Roy's voice and not mine. I will say this, I did not speak much during this episode. Dr. Roy is an experienced lecturer. She spoke very well. I didn't interrupt her very often. Sometimes I did for ask to ask her to clarify certain things, but she pretty much spoke and she spoke so well that I just sat back and listened. And so you're not really missing anything. I didn't ask any important questions that you can't tell by her answer what was asked. 
So I apologize for this. I hope to have it fixed by next week, but please enjoy this interview. I didn't want to ask her to redo it. We recorded for almost two hours. So I think that you'll still, I know that you'll still get Dr. Roy's wisdom and insights out of this and I need not be present. So you're not missing anything by my voice not being there. Thank you. As a child, as a young woman, um, as a teenager, I should say, I have always known that I would go abroad to for higher education. This is nothing unusual in where I come from. Um, for women, it was rather unusual. Even in those days, I'm talking about uh, 60s, late 50s, 60s. Um, but my family has always been very um, education-oriented, and that's typical of Indian middle-class, upper-middle-class families in general. Education is highly valued, um, primarily for boys, for livelihood, but also in general. So most girls are also, they often end up college education, not necessarily always um, for gainful employment, but this is common practice. Anyway, I was a good student from childhood, and I knew I was also encouraged by my parents to do well. So I knew that I would go abroad, and I always had that in the back of my mind. And I got scholarships throughout my education from after leaving the high school. So when I went to Calcutta for six years in college and university, um, I did uh, well. I was I stood second at the university in geography, and um, um, received a silver medal. And I applied to several universities, and but at that time I also fell in love with my first love happened, and I was in my late teens. And I married the man I met and fell in love madly. That is rather unusual at that age. <laughs> and we both decided to, he was a student of economics, we both decided to come abroad for studies. So he applied, and I got several offers, And but then we decided not to separate from each other. So I went to the campus where he got a fellowship and went there. And this was the very beginning of computers. And they made a mistake. They offered me a fellowship in geography for PhD, but they didn't have PhD program. And it was discovered after we got there, and they were very apologetic, and they asked me I could do anything I wanted. I could teach. I could um, study anything. They would offer the necessary fund. So I decided to, of course, I was newly married. I decided to do the uh, household and get to know the country, the new country, and explore and just do things I wanted to do for a while. That was Rochester, New York. And it's a beautiful little town. Um, Kodak is famous there and all kinds of things. And the most important thing for me was a park with thousands of bushes of lilac. And Rochester was world famous for its lilac festival. So it was it had a lot of things to explore. I also took Spanish and French uh, because I knew eventually I would have to do a foreign language. And the Indian languages I know 
would not be counted. So I thought I could prepare for that for the future for my PhD. Anyway, after two years of doing, and I did a lot of reading, um, I still remember in the middle of the winter, you know, Rochester winters are long and snowy. I would be in the university library until one or two and they closed and read and because I always loved to love the world of books anyway. So after about two years, I got a little tired of doing all these different things. So I needed to go back to regular studies. So somebody suggested that why don't you see the anthropology department chairman because anthropology may not be that far off from geography. Now, geography has one paper, one section called human geography, which is similar to anthropology a little bit. And I was also lucky to have a professor in Calcutta who was a geographer and an anthropologist both. And he was very well known. He was actually advisor to the prime minister of India on the tribal affairs. So he was very known as a person, as a scholar. And and I knew him. He he was one of the professors, and we were only ten or twelve people in the geography department when I was doing my masters. So I knew him personally well, and I wrote him a letter saying, "What do you think?" And he said, "That's a very good idea. So why don't you move to anthropology if they let you?" So I saw the chairman of the anthropology department, and he said, "Well, you have a very good um, career, although you have no background in anthropology." So I'll give you a chance. And he gave me five books. Now, this was, I'm telling you this because this was the beginning of an interesting pattern in my life. I always had mentors who were unusual people. They were unconventional. And they somehow, they always let me do things I wanted to do because they saw something perhaps in me that they trusted. Anyway, he gave me five um, fairly complicated books. Um, to read, and he said, after one month, you come back, we'll have lunch, and I'll talk to you, and I'll see if I can admit you. So I did, and of course, I told him what I, some some of the books I didn't quite understand, some I, it was over my head, some I made comments and told him what I thought, and after the lunch, he said, okay, I'll give you an opportunity to enter the department, but you have to take undergraduate classes as well as graduate classes. And you can choose, but um, I'm taking a risk, but um, let's see how it goes. So, and he offered me a research fellowship. So that's how I could start anthropology, and that's how I ended up in anthropology. So most of my studies, although it looks like I have moved from subject to subject, they happened (laughs) in a way that I didn't have too much of a choice. So... And this is a pattern also I noticed looking back in my life because what people call accidents or things that happen beyond your control often are the most important things that happen because some bigger forces or your own unconscious wisdom or whatever you want to call it, God or fate or destiny, (laughs) is guiding from background. And if one thing I always did, when things happened like that, I always embraced them. I never rejected them. Not that I did have too much of a power or choice. So anyway, I finished my 
second master's in social anthropology, which is a branch of anthropology that uh, started in England. And I got to know some very famous anthropologists who came from England to teach. So it was a good experience and connection. Two years later, we moved to Chicago because my husband had to follow a particular professor that he wanted to work with. And I felt I was very fortunate because Chicago was famous for cultural anthropology uh, at the time. And all the people I have read as texts and books, they were teaching there. So I thought it was wonderful. So in Chicago, we spent two years and I took everything I could in cultural anthropology and there was a committee formed for me to advise me for research. And I thought, okay, I would go back to India and work with a tribe that I always wanted to know more and in Assam where I was born. And so that was the plan. Meanwhile, the marriage of five years <clears throat> cracked, had some problems. And I realized that my husband <clears throat> wanted me to not go any further with my studies. Uh, it could have been competition, jealousy. Looking back, I could have all kinds of assessment. But at the time, I did not quite understand. And so I told him, let's have a family. I would like to have a child. And he told me he was a, a self-professed Marxist economist. And he told me the world is full of people. I don't think we should add another to this big population. So he decided that we should not have children. And I, of course, acquiesced. Um, you know, it was a young wife, didn't have much of a uh, strength I have now. But anyway, I said, in that case, I'm going to continue because I'm not going to sit idle. So then I think we wanted to also go home. Six years passed, and our families were all very uh, eager for us to go back. My brother was getting married, so we decided to postpone everything and go back for a short time. Meanwhile, go back to India for a, for a vacation, and then we'll decide whether to come back or do some. I needed to do field work there anyway, so I needed a couple of years of break. So, but before we went to India, and we also thought if we go back to India, the familiar area, we may, the marriage may uh, cement again or something, but it didn't work. And things began to happen, which I don't want to go into right now, but it's uh, my memoir talks about it briefly, is that I was shocked to find things that I did not realize that I did not see in my husband. That happens to many people when they're in love and they're young. So he suddenly became very controlling and said that you, first he said, we should be independent from each other. We should have different friends, different bank account, different life. And we are going to be uh, very different from most couples. We can still in love and still be together, but we don't have to be committed to each other. So I told him, you're playing with fire. This is not right. I don't know, but this is very scary. I don't like what you're saying. But he was determined to do this experiment. And of course, everything started falling apart. Um, uh, he professed independence, but at the same time, if I came home a bit late or something, he was very eager to find where I was, with whom, etc. Jealousy, 
suspicion, all these things. There's the whole dark side uh, that started coming out that I had no clue. And I tried to go along with it. And of course, things began to happen to my life that I did not anticipate. And so things were just completely destructive. And it was clear that the marriage is not going to be mended. So anyway, I went back to India. I spent five years there and I decided to stay. I never liked to stay here. Um, I liked the education, but I didn't care for the politics. And I thought, okay, I'll make the life there. But to my great surprise and shock, um, I didn't get any support from my family or for, for the you know the extended family or the immediate um, community when I decided to divorce my husband. So that was a huge, huge uh, experience of struggle. I couldn't get a job. Even the university where I was one of the best students, I went back to for a job. They said, well, you are too young. I was in my late 20s. You have to come back 10 years later to get a job at the university. And colleges, different colleges offered me positions, but then there were gossips and scandals and things like that. So big cities sometimes, at least Indian big cities, can be like little villages when it came to personal things. Finally, I got a job with the government of India, and it was a very good position, a research scholar. And I was delighted because then I could go to the field and work. But even there, I had huge issues with uh, colleagues and uh, older men, particularly thought that here I came at 29, 28-year-old woman, got a position they wanted to have. Uh, because of my Western degree, American degree, I got it. So I had to struggle with that, that huge amount of backbiting, competition, all kinds of things. So the books goes into that to some extent, um, my four homes. So I don't want to go into that. It was a couple of years of real torture. And not having the support from my own family, especially my mother, who was very conservative, and she didn't like the fact that I um, left my husband, even though when I chose him, she didn't like it either. But she finally gave in, but she was very, very upset. And without the support of your family in a conservative old culture, is extremely difficult. And it then spilled over to, I couldn't get an apartment. Um, because I was alone. I didn't have a husband or a son or a brother or a father. So that these were the 60s. And not too much have changed. A little bit on the surface, but people tell me that even now, for a single woman to live alone is not that easy. Maybe it's not easy here either, but to, to much more difficult in those countries. Anyway, at that point... Reluctantly, I decided to come back. But meanwhile, all these four or five years between 64 and 69, a lot has changed. The committee that I formed in Chicago sort of broke apart. Some died, some retired. So I decided to, and also I didn't care for the weather in the north, so I decided to um, go to a warmer climate. So I applied to all the southern campuses, as many as I could. And I got about four or five uh, fellowships and admissions. And so I chose California because everybody talks about California. I've never visited there. 
So I thought, okay, let's try California. Also, they offered me the best uh, fellowship. And again, speaking of accident, it turned out, which I had no idea, it turned out to be a new department of anthropology, which was specializing in psychological anthropology. Now, in my all my training in anthropology, both in Rochester and Chicago, I had I was not aware of this particular branch. I knew cultural anthropology, but not psychological anthropology. So after I arrived, I discovered that that was the case, and I thought, well, okay, let's see. Maybe again, fate sort of moved me to a direction, and it was a interesting experience because. Um, I was the first batch out of 10 students, and I was a little older because I spent four, four years in India. So it was interesting because my chairman of the department, who was quite well known as an anthropologist, and he worked, his field work was in Myanmar, Burma, so which was next door from where I was born. So it was interesting coincidence there too. So... Anyway, I did my PhD very quickly there in three years, which is unheard of, partly because I could. Exactly. That's the southernmost campus. And this department was brand new. So they had a lot of endowment, a lot of money, a lot of funds, and they got the best people they could. And the chairman, Dr. Melford Spiro, was very good in getting the, for example, I had one year of Margaret Mead in our department, she taught us, and her husband, Gregory Bateson, taught us. So we had all kinds of interesting people from all over the world that came and taught. So I had a very interesting experience. It was very Freudian because all the professors were trained or analyzed by Freudian. And throughout these three years of my coursework, I never heard the word you once. I saw some footnotes here and there. So I had no clue about Jung. That's another reason I'm mentioning it, because after having heavy dose of Freudian anthropology, and it's not called Freudian, but it's called psychoanalytic anthropology or psychological anthropology, I ultimately I ended up being a Jungian, which is also another set of accidents, so-called accidents. What we Jungians call synchronicity, which are events too, we perhaps know already, to unrelated events happen at the same time, meaningful events, but a causal. Anyway, so in San Diego, I finished my doctorate in three years because partly I didn't care for Southern Californian culture at all. Uh, I found it, compared to North, uh, Northern California, I found it rather superficial and very um, beach-going, extroverted culture, which was not to my liking. So I got out as quickly as I could. But um, the thesis I wrote there, which became my first book, um, was mostly what I did after I left the job with the government. I work myself with my own funds in village India, village Bengal, where I come, where my culture is, although I was born in another state. And this uh, research was on women. Uh, middle-class, upper-class women that I knew better. And ever since I moved to Calcutta to go to college, because I was brought up in another state, in a small nuclear family, I encountered things that of my own culture that I had no clue. So I started, which I did all my life, I started keeping a journal. 
about things I watched, which seemed very strange to me. So and that journal, my advisor in San Diego asked me, what would you like to do your thesis on? So I thought of several topics, divorce in Southern California, which was very high, um, all kinds of things. And then he said, what would you really like? I said, you know, I kept some journal, and I think I was very surprised by the way things happen, people relate to each other, and I always wanted to write a book, but I don't know whether this would be considered anthropology. And he said, okay, let me see. I said, but it's in my mother tongue. So he said, okay, I give you three months. You translate it for me. So there are about four or 500 pages of my journal. I translated for him. Here again, he did something very unconventional and very unusual. And after I made the translation, he read it and he said, this is your thesis. There's enough anthropology here, but you have to go back and do a formal research. So I had it kind of done in reverse. I had all the material, the ethnography, and then I went back and did some formal fieldwork, um, numbers and you know quantitative part of it. And so that's then I wrote the thesis in April 1972. My mother suddenly died. Actually, very very sudden. She was only 58 years old. She had diabetes. Did not do much treatment. And that grief, I, only way I could deal with is concentrating on my thesis. So I wrote the thesis very quickly within three months. And anyway, it was accepted. And not only that, it was given to uh, Chicago University, wanted to look at it, somebody in the press, and they decided to publish it. And so after the doctorate, I, they offered me a postdoc so that I could be there and work on revising the thesis for the book. So that was wonderful break because I always liked because I was in Chicago before. So I went back there as a postdoc, taught as an assistant to a friend of mine who was also a very famous Indologist, A.K. Um, Ramanujan. So I got some wonderful experience teaching in Chicago, right? And the th it was published in 1976, and it's still in the market, and it's also in the electronically available. So anyway, and many, I think my husband was checking it with the Google, and he found 600 or 700 libraries have it in the world. That book had such a splash. I got, I don't know, at least 400 reviews all over the world. People from Russia, from Amsterdam, from Japan wrote me that, why do you call it Bengali women? It's about every woman. So there's something in that book that is universal. The book was very briefly about women, educated women in upper class, upper middle class families um, are brought up with a lot of input through their studies to their exposures to the films, to literature, and to the family instructions that they have dreams about their marriage and then what reality after they're married. Most of these women are married. Hardly anybody goes for career, and at that time anyway. And I'm talking about late 50s, early 60s. And um, 
of things have changed, of course, since then. And the second edition of the book uh, has an afterword that talks about the change as well. So anyway, and the disappointment from their dreams and from their aspirations for their future, and mostly connected to the marriage and what they faced, uh, was the main topic of the book and how some cultures offer compensation for it and offers ways to compensate, to cope with it, and some cultures don't. And that could also open opportunities for women to come out from the families, do other things. So anyway, that it was apparently it was much more universal than I thought. So that was the first book. And after one year in Chicago, I, I applied for jobs, and I got a job at University of Colorado as an assistant professor, junior professor. And when there, speaking of another synchronicity accident, I realized, because I was born in the foothills, and I always loved mountains, so I wanted to find a place to live in Boulder rather than Denver, even though the campus was in Denver. I wanted to be near the mountains. So I kept asking, how can I get a place on the mountains? And somebody told me that Linda Leonard is just joined the philosophy department of the same university the same year I did. And she has a little cottage in the foothills of Boulder somewhere, and you perhaps she can tell you. And I'm talking about early 70s, and the real estate offices were not that prevalent at that time. People went by word of the mouth. So I called Linda, and she said, oh, so you just joined, I just joined, I'm kind of a little lonely, so why don't you meet for lunch and talk about it? So we met for lunch, and she had a pile of books in her hands she put on the table. The top book was called Portable Jung. I said, well, Jung, you mean the psychiatrist Jung? She said, yes. I said, is he really very good? She said, well, you know, I have a lot of books to carry today. You can take it home. I can borrow it and look at it yourself. And I said, how come you are reading this book? She said, I'm a Jungian. I said, what is that? So she told me about, and she went to Zurich to study Heidegger, which is the philosopher that she studied before. And she ended up going to the Jung Institute because of some accidents in her life and ended up being a Jungian. So she said, and she told me all about it. So about an hour or hour and a half, we were together lunching. We never mentioned the cottage in the mountain. We forgot completely about it. We talked about Jung, Zurich, our training. So that's the fascinating thing that happened. And I took the book. I opened it in the middle of the book. I started Jung. It's an article called Answer to Job of the Old Testament. Now, I'm not a Christian. I never read the Bible. But I started reading that article, and I couldn't stop. I read, finished it, and I read more. I was up all night with that book. Early morning, before I went to bed, I called Linda, and I said, I have to know more about this guy, and how do I do this? She said, why don't you sleep? We can talk later. So that's how I got, I, Jung did something to me, which was, I never read until then in any scholar of psychologist. It, his, he talks about experiential psychology, which I never experienced before. 
So, I mean, Freud is a genius. He's brilliant. However, it didn't quite did it for me in terms of experience. So I had to, I worked only two years by that time. So Linda said, they don't. I said, look, I got scholarship all my life. I will get something. She said, they don't have any scholarship. You have to show $10,000 in your bank before you can get the visa. This is Switzerland we are talking about. So my salary at the time was 12000 a year, which is unheard of nowadays. So <laughs> I thought, well, okay, I'll see what I can do. So to cut the long story short, it's of course all in my memoir. I put an advertisement saying, I want a place, a room, with a tiny kitchenette, if possible, for no more than $70. So I did some calculation that maybe I could try hard, and I made a list of things, controllable expense, uncontrollable expense, and everything controllable I sacrificed. I didn't go to a movie. I didn't buy any piece of clothing. I didn't buy a book. No cassette. No nothing. No luxury items. So uh, a student of mine, an older woman who came back to school after many years, she called and she said, I didn't put my name, I just put the number. And she said, you know, I have a basement you can rent, um, but there is no kitchen there, but you can eat with us. And may I ask why you want to do this drastic thing? So I told her. And she was very excited. She said, I would help you. And I will try to see how you can save money. I said, but I don't want your monetary help. He said, no, but we'll run your life very frugally and see what you can do. So I started, she measured everything she did for cooking. So I was spending very little for, I never ate out or anything. I even sacrificed coffee or anything like that extra. So by the end of nine months, I saved $9,000 out of 12000 so I wrote a letter, a personal letter to the admissions in Zurich and said that I tried this is my income. I tried very hard and I couldn't do 10000 but I have $9,000. Could I get a special, you know, uh, consideration? And I guess they were impressed by the fact that I did it. They said, okay, we'll make an exception. And... So they got the visa, but meanwhile, I had to get the leave of absence because I didn't want to lose the job. And they said, okay, we'll give you one year without salary. So I go with $9,000 in my hand to Zurich because I knew, I knew that I had to do it. And everybody, my family, my professors, my colleagues, everybody told me, you're being a stupid fool, going for something you don't know anything about, just reading a few articles, and you're taking a risk. And I said, well, I have to try it. And so I don't know what it was, but something in me was absolutely determined, even though practically it made no sense. So I did. And later, of course, after eight years of analysis, I realized it was the self, that very deep internal core of oneself that was guiding me. And it didn't care about the practical part of it. So to answer your question in a long way, even though I wanted to be brief, but I couldn't, um, that's how I ended up being a Jungian. Of course, nothing is wasted in life. I still use a lot of anthropology. And I, then I realized 
Having the anthropology background before I became a Jungian analyst was absolutely fantastic because my anthropology background gave me ideas about how a person individually is conditioned by the culture. And it's amazing, the older I get, the more I work with people, the more I see how powerful culture is. And we think, especially in this country, in America, uh, which also attracted me about America was the personal freedom, which of course has gone through a lot of evolution. And we are arriving to this point, 2020, and all kinds of changes. But so personal freedom that America has allowed people, um, if you go into, if you analyze somebody, you do therapy analysis in the deeper sense with the unconscious material, you realize it is even in America where it's a young culture, the white American culture is only 200 years old, a little more 200. Even in this culture, how much people's background um, still have impact on their personality and their attitudes and their behavior. So I always, when I see somebody first time, I always ask them for a background of their up to two, three generations and where they came from. Because most people came from somewhere else. And I see the importance of that. And very few of my colleagues go to that part of that because of my anthropology training and because I come from an old culture. And I see how strong that impact is. And I put my back to India because of the way I was treated after divorce. And I didn't like it. A culture like that would take care of you completely and give you every um, care you need, provided you comply, provided you go with it, which I didn't because I broke the cardinal rule that one doesn't break a marriage. And of course, divorce rate has gone up now, but still minuscule compared to the West. But it's, um, it's another whole story about the Indian culture. But I put my back to it because I had to be independent. And the price I paid was heavy. But the price I paid also opened the doors for my life, for my own development and my own work. So it's the double-edged sword. But the fact remains the culture is extremely powerful. So in a way, anthropology stood me very well and helps me. And right now, of course, I still, whatever I write in psychology, I can see the impact of anthropology. It's just... And the latest book that you mentioned that came out last year um, actually has a lot of the sociological anthropological background because we cannot really talk about an individual without placing that person in a social community situation. Nobody is, you know, alone and out of, without roots. This is very interesting. I don't know if anybody else has this kind of experience. I wrote and rewrote because it was <clears throat> it was my diploma thesis in originally in Zurich, and I wanted to do a book out of it. But of course, doing one time the Bengali women came from a thesis also. But I have the experience how difficult it is to turn a thesis into a book if you want a bigger readership. 
you can do it for a special, you know, group of people like your colleagues. But if you want a big leadership, it's a lot of work. So I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. It was accepted three times by three publishers and rejected after a lot of work as they wanted. And it was not very pleasant experience with a couple of times. One time it was a contract signed and then rejected and I rejected because the editor started demanding too much. Uh, so actually it turned out that she was a frustrated writer herself. So she wanted all of her imprint in the book. And I said, that would be your book, not my book. So all kinds of things happen. And that took about a year or two. And then I got so tired of it because I rewrote at least three or four times according to different publishers needs and demands. So I decided, okay, hell with it. You know how you get tired of your own work sometimes. And I wanted a break from it. So I put, literally, I put it in the very top shelf of the <laughs> library and forgot about it. So recently, Chiron, which published my memoir in 2015, and the publisher was always interested for some reason. He was he saw things in my writing that many other publishers didn't. And you know, the best thing that can happen to a writer is uh, you find an editor or a publisher who really knows you, feels your writing, feels your real, what you are trying to say. So finally it happened. And so I was delighted, although it was not going very smoothly because he had other things to do. He was not very uh, easy to reach. Anyway, he suddenly, after the memoir was finished, he said, by the way, do you have any manuscript that you don't, did not want to finish or half finished or you have forgotten? And I don't know why <laughs> he came up with that statement. Absolutely. I never mentioned it to anybody after I have left it. So he said, I said, but there is something, but it is so old. I left it, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And it must be dated, and it's no good. He said, well, why don't you send it? I said, well, I typed it in a typewriter. It's not even the computer time. So how would you, I can send you a copy. It must be faded. And he said, well, no, modern technology. We'll put it in the computer somehow. And he took the trouble to do that and read it. And he wrote me back about a month later that I think we can. we would like to publish it because what you say in this manuscript actually is not dated because it is something eternal, but you may have to do some work. And I said, no, not again, because I've worked so. <laughs> so I was really very reluctant. And by that time, of course, I started writing fiction. That's another whole long story. And I just really enjoy writing fiction much more. And I don't want to go back to the academic writing. But, you know, but he was so enthusiastic, and I thought, well, this would be the way to get it out. And I met him and Steve, his partner, they were two, um, they together on the, because uh, I published from Chiron before it was owned by two Jungian analysts, uh, Maurice Stein and Nathan Schwartz, and which office, office was in Wilmot in Illinois. And so they, they published the, the one you mentioned, uh, Cast the First Stone. And so anyway, they they knew about me because the book was, you know, they knew who published me earlier. 
I met them in Copenhagen in a congress, in a, in a, in a analytical psychology congress. And we met, and so he hit off. And he, that's when they said, okay, we'd like to see what you have. So I told them that, you know, I would love to publish some of my fiction, which I've been writing in my mother tongue. I already published a couple of books on fiction. So they said, okay, why don't you translate them or send us something in English? So that was that. But then he wanted to go back to this one. So I was not that keen, but then I said, okay. So I ended up working on this manuscript after the previous work very, very hard. This is perhaps the only manuscript I worked harder than any other. So anyway, it finally came out, and of the readers could judge how. So there are some, I have some reviews, but very few, because it's a little more specialized. It's only the psychologists or Jungians perhaps could see it. It's about women, and it's about more of American women than my first book was about Indian women, although that was considered more universal than idealized. So hopefully this would be also more universal. But I sort of go historically a little bit from the 60s that I have known when I first came here with the women's liberation movement down to now. And of course, a lot of things have changed, the feminist movement and uh, women have changed and all sorts of things. The changes in this country is enormous as you know better than I do. And so I tried to stay with the unconscious material and use Jung's concept of the animus and anima and try to show that no matter how much women change externally, professionally, uh, in education, in also um, political rights and legal rights, until and unless they come to terms with their unconscious part of them, their own masculine side, their own feminine side, and their self, the self that moves us, that directs us silently and quietly from the background, our life, they may never be happy with themselves. So that was the part that uh, Len Cruz thought was universal or eternal. And so I tried to... But as you know, you have had analysis yourself. It's not easy to talk about unconscious and unconscious material, especially in terms of the theory, the little theory that Jung has. He has very little theory. He always said uh, that he's, he doesn't have theories, but he has names for experiences which are not always conscious. That's the way he put it to a letter to Yolanda Jacobi, if I I sort of paraphrased it. So if you talk about archetypes to a person, educated person, but not Jungian, it's always a problem. It's always a struggle. What do you mean? Okay, what's the proof, etc., etc. It took 100 years for Freud's concept of the unconscious, the existence of the unconscious, to be accepted by the medical community and by the educated people. And I think to for people to get the intricacies of Jungian concept, it perhaps will take another 50, if not more. So it is perhaps still be appreciated among Jungians or Jung-oriented 
psychologist. But I'm hoping that I try to write without jargon as much as I can. And that's why Bengali women lasted this long because it doesn't have much jargon. So I'm hoping that it would be accessible to um, general educated people. But we'll see. It's only one year in the market, so we'll see. But as I said, it's a very difficult concept for people who who have not not only not read Jung, but also have not experienced it emotionally. Um, and all my work, all my Jungian work is on animus. So I have spent a lot of time with it, partly because personally, I wanted to understand why, especially after my marriage broke down. And of course, I de- remarried. And, but why we are attracted by certain kind of people. And sometimes it's repeated, as some, people, some women would know or admit. And so what is it that we project when we meet somebody? When you fall in love uh, as a young woman, um, we see something in the person, but we also add a lot. And that addition, uh, the... I have to digress a little bit. There's a wonderful poet in my language in India, and you might know the name. He was a Nobel laureate uh, in 1913, uh, Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore. And he said he has written thousands, eight or six thousands, nine thousand songs and poems, and anyway, an incredibly creative person. He said in one of his songs, and that will describe this, what I'm trying to say, very much better. Um, I create you with my imagination because I have to do it. It's my need that I create you. And I think, I'm translating it, but I think what he's saying and what I'm trying to say in a more prosaic language is that when we fall in love with somebody, we see something in them behaviorally, or what they say, how they look. Uh, physical part is also important. But we add maybe 80% to that. And the things that we add is the psychologically skull projection. We project what we already have in deep down inside us, and that is our animus. That is the masculine aspect of a woman, a biological woman. And that the masculine aspect is called masculine, not necessarily gender-wise. It's masculine because it's not always developed in a woman's life. In the past, it was less developed. Now, women do more so-called masculine things. But it's masculine also metaphorically. It's masculine also linguistically because it is a style of being which is not feminine. And when I say feminine, again, I'm not just staying with the gender. Also, gender is connected, but I'm also going to a a bigger meaning, which is connected to the earth, to nature, to mother nature, to instinct. Uh, The best example is maternal instinct. That doesn't mean that men don't have it, but women have it naturally. And maternal instinct, I don't mean biological mother only. I mean that particular kind of instinct which wants to grow things, wants to give birth to things. It could be any kind of birth, 
wants to see things grow, get better, stay alive, nurture. These are the feminine qualities, the basic feminine qualities that we learn from nature, Mother Nature. And this is what even now, even after all the evolution and masculinization of cultures, we still know that a woman is more fulfilled, mostly, not all women, but many women, when she has a child, when she can love somebody. And if she doesn't have a child, she would put it to other things, a pet, a dog, or even a lover. So nurturing, loving, in that sense, is very, very feminine quality, but men have it in their own way as well. And some men have it more than others. So I'm sort of ad-libbing, but I've, I think it's scattered all over my writings. All my books talk about animals at some point or other, and some articles are written on the animals and with examples. So to put it in a, you know, in a conversation like this, I can only say uh, animals for women is that part of her which is, remains unconscious but is projected out consciously on outer men, outer ideas, masculine ideas, masculine style, masculine behavior. When a woman goes to the army and becomes the pilot of a uh, bombing plane or what are they called, fighter bomber, you know, those in the war front, she'll have to marshal not only courage, physical courage, but also decision-making. She has to keep her feminine side completely uh, aside and to, in order to accomplish that job because that's not something women by tradition have learned to do. Women have, by tradition have learned to do how to build a nest, how to take care of the uh, family, how to organize a dinner party, how to organize, period. Women are very good organizers. That's why women do so well in business, many business. So, it's, of course, we can disagree on which qualities are masculine, which qualities are feminine. There, the culture comes in. Maybe I'm a little bit influenced by my culture when I say those things which are feminine because I've seen that more accentuated in my culture. Here, a mother behaves slightly differently than a mother in India. So, but I lived here long enough to see both, and I see the cultural impact of it. But every culture has its definition of feminine and masculine. And the way I'm trying to define animus and anima, anima is the feminine part in the male, the opposite of what animus is. And the important thing about knowing these concepts, I think it's the sheer uh, stroke of genius when Jung encountered this from his own experience, actually. And the important reason we need to know this because they're not only that we project on outer people, which could be a root of all your happiness, a root of all your unhappiness, but it's also the root of our creativity. The, this is the energy that keeps us alive. Animation comes from the same root. Animas, anima, animation. It's also life force. So it's vitally important to realize that what we are biologically 
is only half of it. We need to connect with the other side. That other side is a flexible definition because with time, it will change. And it's already changing. And it's changed already in America more than perhaps even in Europe. And further east you go, it's slightly different. And so, but it is vitally important to know the ego, the individual, the conscious part of our individuality must know about it to deal with life. And especially women who want to understand themselves more, not all women do. Um, some women live through only playing their roles. This is where the stereotypes in the title of the book comes in. Because stereotypes are the role-playing that we learn from early childhood by the culture, by the family, by the society. But used to be the stereotypes guided us. Stereotypes were good enough to guide us through life. But life has become more complicated. Stereotypes don't do it anymore. And women are bored with stereotypes. And that's why they go out of it. And going for so-called masculine jobs, and I call it so-called because it's not just gender-oriented, um, is exciting to a woman. If you remember, I don't know how old you are, if you remember 70s, 80s, even 60s, um, the things are opening, new jobs are opening for women that they didn't even think of doing, plumbing, uh, automotive engineering, things like that, engineering, and how excited women were, how excited the students were, and they did better. Students did better in science and technology when they first went into those subjects because it was exciting and fascinating because it was on the other side. It was something that we were not used to. Of course, now it's much more, people are much more habituated in this. So there is this excitement of going to offer to the other side, and that other side is vitally important for us to incorporate in our own life. And of course, if we overdo it, and if we don't know about it, then the danger is that we identify with it. And you will meet women who become what the Jungians call animus caught or animus possessed because what happens then the animus, the energy from the unconscious possess you. It's like a possession, like a neurotic situation. So you become... Well, um, I don't know that you have met. I have met women, uh, especially in the university situation or educational backgrounds or even politics. You meet them quite often in politics. Um, otherwise, extremely intelligent, educated, and enlightened women. But somewhere, they haven't dealt with the fact that this is coming from within themselves. So they become, the animals possesses them, they would um, say things which are artificial, which are like lecturing only, um, not coming from, not authentic, that would be the word I would use. It, it's uh, like something came on them from outside, um, artificial. Of course, some women are brought up to live artificial lives sometimes, because of the family situation and not say what they feel or what they think or the, what they mean. They have to please people. 
that is slightly different. But see, they also have no choice when the animus possesses them. They become like a man in a woman's clothing. Um, in a, in a, and not really like a real man, an exaggerated man. Uh, there are characters like that in fiction, in uh, literature, in movies. In real life, you may encounter them sometimes, but now that women are doing more and more masculine things, it's becoming more natural. So it's not what Jung saw in his time a hundred years ago. It's not as common anymore. So if Ron France is telling you, giving you examples, she perhaps would give you examples which are not so common anymore. However, they may still happen. I see them in my practice still now. Um, they would utter uh, sayings, um, things like not sort of detached from what they really feel, what they really are. Let me give a little better example. It may come in two, three different ways. When an animus possesses a woman, she doesn't even know where the things are coming from, how she's behaving. Um, she becomes very... It could be compared... And forgive me for the example, it could be compared to a very masculine lesbian, for example, in her behavior. But she's not lesbian. She's a regular uh, heterosexual woman, let's say. Um, but she's behaving like she's much more in a man's body or man's psyche. It's a little caricaturish. Um, the other way she can show it by remaining fairly feminine, but she would choose men. She would fall in love with men who are feminine. In other words, unconsciously, she does not need the masculinity. She already has it, but she does not know that she has it. So she projects the feminine side onto the man, and she finds the feminine man. So there are many, many different ways it can come out. You might meet a political leader who is copying a masculine leader and quoting him all the time, but it's not coming from within herself. It's not filtered through her own understanding of it. Okay, that's the one way I can put it. Well, you can say that very easily because you had years of analysis. You were exposed to uh, Jung. Um, it's interesting. I have to give you an interesting example. When I was teaching, I did a research, and I started, of course, I went back for one year to teach after I had a couple of years in Zurich and to decide whether I should keep the job or quit or I have to come back. So that was a year of decision, very strong decision-making, and I did quit and without any income. So anyway, that's another interesting story that how I came to get the job in Zurich University. But anyway, that's another story I can, can tell you another time. But the research I did when I was teaching, I wanted to see what you just said, how the students, they were like in their 18, 19 years old, first year college students, and how they see themselves and how they value masculine, feminine side of themselves or the fact that they're girls, do they like it or the boys? So I had very simple questions. Um, if you have a choice, if you do it 
differently. Would you be a boy or a girl? And um, why? And I had about 100 kids, both men and women, and you would be amazed at the result. 99% girls said they would like to be boys. And 99 or 100% of boys said they would like to be boys. So then I did some field work when I was an anthropology student. And I did that because I was always interested in the gender issues and culture. So I did a, <laughs> I went back to the Zampawas and Zuni uh, place where I did my field work as a student. And I did the same test with the American, Native American kids. And it was just the opposite. The boys wanted to be girls, and the girls wanted to remain girls. So you can see even within this continent, the Native American cultures, and I was pleased to see that they haven't lost most of their culture yet, because their values, their spirituality, their culture, their identity as the Native Americans remained what they really believed in. And they went because they, as you know, they're very nature-oriented. The nature is the spirit. That's their divinity. That's their God. So that I was not surprised by that answer. I was quite surprised by the answer of the city people and the white population. So it will tell you that I think it, of course, it goes, takes us back to many other factors. Religion is a major factor. Monotheism. Monotheism with the male god, which created incredible uh, advancement in science and technology because of concentration and analytical power. But monotheism also psychologically did something in terms of what we are talking about. Because women in the West for a long, long time, and Christian West anyway, did not have, which is majority, did not have, um, of course, Islam is another whole story, but did not have that, um, the Judeo-Christian background I'm talking about, did not have that role model in the divine world to worship or to look up to. That's one factor. And also, Mary, mother of Christ, was created or imagined in a way which was not a role model for the modern women. So modern women, of course, characters like Lilith or the Old Testament characters, the strong women characters, were forgotten or pushed aside. And of course, with Neolithic era, with uh, city culture starting, so-called civilization city, writing, record-keeping, mathematics, all these things started a tremendous change. I'm bringing in a lot of stuff, but I can't elaborate on those, and I'm sure you get the idea. It's also partly responsible. It's not just happened out of the thin air. Partly responsible to the more we got away from nature, the more we conquered nature, and all the temperate zone, and it's geography as well, all the temperate zones of the globe had to do it to make a life. And, you know, Scandinavian countries, where my husband comes from, Sweden, they, the population did not start until 10,000 years ago only, whereas Africa, South Asia, and all this original where the homo sapiens came, this goes back millennia. 
So hot countries, hot parts of the world where, where the uh, human civilization began. So there is a continuity and there is a historical importance. And uh, most of the European uh, North American countries, because of their climatic need, they had to go against nature. They had to conquer nature. And the technological innovations happened by necessity. So going against nature, look at what it does to psychology. Because an Indian culture, because it's a very fertile land, the plains India, there are some deserts, but most of India, especially where I come from, nobody ever had to even think that they would not have food or they would uh, they would have to go uh, find some artificial irrigation to do things because nature was so benevolent. So nature was part of us. Nature was, uh, we worship nature, and nature was something that we are friendly with. Not so in the temperate zones. They had to conquer nature. So it's partly by necessity that the femininity in the original sense, in the natural sense, had to be conquered, had to be put down. Conquered is a better word because that's the mentality remained with the masculine psyche is conquering. And some men even tell you that, you know, it's like hunting or conquering. If you conquer somebody, you get hold of this. You know that you get this woman. Okay, so you can possess her. And women for until, let's say, several centuries back were positions. And they were, you know, they were given bright price to marry. They were bought and sold, even now. Sex trafficking still continues. So it's all connected to geography, to the way things happen. It's not that we can blame one or the other. It's like all the factors have to be considered and see it as it is. And then see what we can do with that. Because ultimately we all want to be at peace with ourselves and call it happiness, call it, I prefer to call it at peace. And that's why you all, we all look to, to try to understand who we are. And whether it's Freud or Jung or whatever modality suits you, we look and look and look and uh, struggle. So we were on the topic of um, animus possession. So if we don't know what is inside you, what is your... Uh, inherited tendency of some sort, what is archetype, and we have to you have to also trust the archetype as a concept, otherwise it's, it would make no sense. And I did because I saw it experientially. I saw it in my own life. I when I went to and I talk about what, why Jung captured me so much that night when I was reading, because he said something to me which gave me a hint, I'm an intuitive, so gave me a hint intuitively that maybe he can answer me why I do what I do, why I like the same kind of man who bring me unhappiness, why I do the, why am I so determined to do so well in my studies. That's, of course, the animals. The animals, luckily, it was the positive animals who blessed me from the beginning of my childhood. I was a good student. So that gave me meaning. That gave me identity. That gave me tremendous satisfaction when I did well in school. So I had to understand all that. Why my sister is much more uh, family-oriented, house-oriented, uh, children-oriented than I am. All these things I needed to ask. 
And so for me, Jung was the first, um, like a lightning rod, gave me meaning, and I could understand me myself. So I'm not saying everybody is as narcissistically involved with oneself, but I was. And if you want to know yourself, and that's one thing all the sages and people in the world, the wise people said, know yourself, know thyself. And it's, there is no di- distinction between cultures in that. Ultimately, the wise people, whether it's Dalai Lama or uh, Martin Luther King or, you know, whoever you respect as a person that you go f- for answers, they all said one thing in different languages, know yourself. That doesn't mean that, you know, in order to contribute to your country, to your society, people take different routes to do it. So when people are very extroverted, and that has to do with your personality, you will take an external route. You will do community service, you will go for politics, you will do... And by serving people, by doing external things, ultimately you are trying to understand yourself. It's indirect. Introverts do that as more directly. So there are different ways, but we are all looking for the same thing. Because unless we understand ourselves, why we do what we do, why we love somebody the same type of people, why it clicks with somebody else, why I'm excited about this um, uh, politics than other, uh, this philosophy than others, this all has to do with who we are. And in order to know who we are, we have to know our unconscious because our conscious self is minuscule compared to the unconscious. And that's our creative side. All the, the, it's the reservoir of our pleasure and pain and happiness and unhappiness, everything. So the ego has a big responsibility, not only to know that, but to see how to balance it because we all have both sides. And the dark side is the side which is not gotten within the light. So if we bring the dark side out, that's what happens in good analysis with the help of somebody who has gone through it, then we can balance it. It's not that we can do the good and forget the bad. Our completeness, our personal fulfillment comes from balancing both sides. Because without darkness, anybody who has created anything knows that unless we tap into also the unknown, we cannot create. We cannot just go by the conscious good good part of it, or what we call good part of it. So it's essential to know, maybe if not for everybody, but people who are thoughtful, who think for themselves. And today, you know, so, so much consciousness is around, even if it's a masculine consciousness, but it's around. People are asking questions. See what's happening to this country. In 50 years I've been there, 60 years, I see this enormous amount of questioning and courage to question. And as soon as we question, we have to know more than what we see on the surface. It's hard for me to be brief. Of course, I'm a talkative person to begin with. That's one one of my neuroses, maybe. But I have been a teacher all my life. You know, I've taught 60 years, so it's, uh, it, it helps to be able to talk. And I try to make the complex 
concept simpler, and but it's not always possible unless I talk a lot. So I took a lot of time. But um, if you have another something else that you always wanted to ask or didn't get a chance, I could, I'll try to do it simply. America is, a, if we can give a personality to a culture, I sort of like to do it as a, you know, for fun. America is an extroverted, thinking, sensation culture. It values, the culture values, and it benefited from it. Maybe not so much anymore, but for a long time. The, I'm talking about white American culture. Um, although I know something about the Native American culture, but that's not the mainstream. Let's say the mainstream, the dominant culture. Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, extroverted, um, thinking sensation, to put it bluntly, sort of crudely. So for extroverted culture, everything is acted out. Everything is out, outside of yourself. It's extremely difficult for typical American to be quiet, introverted. Um, I don't mean to say that quiet means not talkative, but quite in the sense that you can be alone. People have to do, look at this, what's happening with the COVID-19, Zoom sessions. It's amazing. People have 10, 20, 15 Zoom sessions a day. This is, I think the COVID is happening for a reason, it's a purpose. That's another thing. I think you also, I was always like that, but you also um, under, underline the fact that every event that happens in our life has a purpose. We may not know it. We may not see it immediately. But if we believe in it, then life is much more meaningful. And you can try to see the significance of everything. So for me, coronavirus has happened because it's a global crisis. It's happening partly to cut down perhaps on the population problem, but also, but it's not killing that much compared to other epidemics, but also to give us a lesson. It's a wake-up call, I think, to bring some balance back, and this will touch your topic also. So if women, to go back to feminism, if women uh, took it as a, or take it as a, an opportunity to stay put, we can't go out. The best way to save ourselves from the disease is to keep the distance, social distancing, mask, etc. The fact that so many people are not following it, many are, but many are not. We can see that from the surge. Tells you the value of the about the culture, because why not just stay? Because we are compelled to stay in, stay in for a while. Look at your life. Organize things. Even start with the external. Organize the old letters. Organize the old um, things and get rid of things and go into pictures. And all everybody has. They always complain. There's so much stuff. So take care of this. And once you, even if you just deal with your closet, your clothes, that you are with yourself alone, and you are dealing with something by yourself. So this kind of introversion, even forced introversion, um, if people take advantage of it, I think they will perhaps know a little bit more before they extrovert everything. 
or blame outside for everything or blame the government or the president. I mean, I'm not saying he should not be blamed, but I'm giving you as an example. And that's why I think Len wanted this book out because it goes, it, it, every page of it is trying to uh, subtly or directly or indirectly trying to take women to that place. Because I think, and that will touch the Me Too movement. Me Too movement uh, is okay for women who could, did not dare to say things, but I think there's something very unjust to talk about events that happened 40 years ago and now to punish or to judge these people. Because the, just the sheer fact that if you couldn't do it then, there must have been a reason. And it's not just the fault of the person or patriarchy. It's partly that, but it's not fully that. So I don't, I don't really uh, follow these mushroom things, and I'm not saying anything openly to object to it because this is it will be so uh, much against the mainstream. And I can understand the purpose of it. I can understand the emotion behind it. But I don't think it is just. But again, we are not addressing the right place or going to the right place. Because in order to look inside, even if the women who came forward, it's okay. They said, I, I say, hey, it happened to me, and I didn't have the courage to say it. But I think I, I'm old enough now to look and see why I did what I did. That would be taking not just responsibility, but taking the opportunity to know oneself. Because it's a major part of one's life, your sexuality, how you um, did not respect it or did not know how to deal with it because you are too young, whatever the reason. So it's claiming instead of blaming. I always say that. Don't blame, claim. And if you claim, the people don't do it because it's painful. It's painful to see, when I went to analysis, I couldn't understand, couldn't stand it, because I was this ideal student in my high school. They have a picture of me hanging, you know, like the role model. And everybody thought I was such a good girl. I was obedient. I listened to everybody. The first disobedience I did when I said I'm going to divorce a man. So, and everybody, my uncle told me, you are such a good person. What happened? You suddenly became a monster overnight because I disobeyed. So I had to face in a, almost overnight the darkness that I never knew existed. So I can perhaps speak a little bit what it entails. It entails a lot of pain, and, lot, and that's why people don't do it. So even looking back 30 years ago, why I said yes to this man whom I did not have any uh, attraction for or whatever, Try to understand. I don't understand your physiology at that age, what sexuality is, the, your hormones. Even even the, just the medical part of it would give you a little pause before you try to punish that person. So I think these movements are okay. There is a place for demonstration. What's happening with the racism, I think, is very timely. But movements only seeing outside of you in psychological situation is not going to do much good. And same thing happened with the church, uh, sexuality, abuse, child abuse, it's happening with the women. So 
it's uh, we all know from life. We don't have to know Jung or Freud to know that that revenge or avenging somebody does not bring happiness to you. And it's a stuck situation. It doesn't do anything to anybody. Instead, if you want to try to understand, I think South Africa understood it and tried to do it by reconciliation and truth, whether it happened or not, I don't know. But at least the idea was right. You cannot just keep the enemy and solve the problem. It may solve it outwardly, but it doesn't really solve it. And there, I think Jung is extremely important. And I think the women can learn from Jung, and many men are beginning to see, because he tried to balance the both sides, externally and unconsciously. And he himself did it, because he struggled. After his separation with Freud, he almost lost his sanity. So he he was brave enough to confront whatever came to his fantasy and his dreams, and he then named them, and that's how he came up with animus, anima, and archetypes as a given situation which we could benefit from. We could be more creative and more bring and build a society. If 50% could do it, society would be more wiser. And that was, you know, that's what the psychologists can do. And that's a responsibility on each psychologist. And that's why I think these movements, um, they're temporary um, flare-ups, and maybe temporarily they satisfy some people who are totally extroverted and see only things outside. So that's the problem, because to be a Jungian in a culture like America is a countercultural thing to do. And that's why so few. Uh, my f- favorite story is that since I was a student at training, the number of Jungians in the world has not increased that much. It's still less than 10,000. Because it's not an easy thing to do. So, and those of us, and you have done it yourself, those of us who have had deep analysis of years of analysis, um, we know that this is the only way to come to that place where you are finally happy. Happy in the sense, in the bigger sense, because you are in peace with yourself. And maybe only a few people can do that. I don't know. But um, it doesn't hurt to try. And that's the reason I write. But um, that's the reason I... (laughs) Len Cruz wanted this book to be out. But I don't know whether people will take it the way I'm talking about it. Because everybody, readers, read the way they are. And you take, you know, the same person may read the same same book and five five people take it five different ways. But I hope maybe at least 1% would get it and perhaps would look inside before blaming outside factors. We need outside factors as conditioning factors, but we should not blame any particular thing or particular factor. I mean, just talking about politics, and it's so strong right now, all the time, that the government and politics is not the only thing that is building our life. We individuals have a lot to do with it. To start with, whom we vote, number one, and then also how we live our own lives. A president or a congress 
cannot build our psyche, cannot make us happy. They can offer the financial part or they can offer the doings something good when they're giving these uh, compensations and money for the businesses and things like that. But look what's happening. Coronavirus could teach us a lot of psychology. It's up to us how we take care of ourselves physically and stop the spread of the disease. As simple as that. And even that we are not doing, many of us. So we have to take responsibility. So when you asked me about Me Too movement, I think the Me Too leaders, it was an interesting you know, concept. But they have to also, at least the leaders, have to also see what is the purpose of the movement. What is it? What does it do to a woman personally? And is it ultimately a solution? Putting a few men in jail because of their uh, over sexed behavior is not going to solve the problem from the woman's side. And, you know, one or two cases, very interesting cases, I noticed um, one young actor, actress, woman, who was, um, quote, abused by a man when she was in her 90 um, teens. And she, in her, now she's 30 or in her 40s, she did the same thing to a young man. And that was in New Yorker. Uh, in the same series of this investigative journalism. So it can happen to both sides, provided you don't know who you are. What, what is your sexuality? What does it mean to you in your identity? And how, how you know, it's individual, culture, family background, mainly the culture. Sexuality in America is very different than sexuality in another country how children learn how to call it, suppress it, repress it, sublimate it, or whatever. It's, 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 this, is, this is so complicated. It's not just one person in a hotel room with another person. There's a huge amount of baggage with it that uh, brought you to that point. So to tell people that somebody did it to me 20, 40, 50 years ago, and you get some financial compensation. It's, it's a ridiculous way to do it. And same with um, some other political uh, movements and demonstrations. I think, you know, you this COVID also brought us face-to-face -face some other information that I did not know, and I feel lucky to know that. Some of the mayors, some of the governors of this country, how they think differently than the mainstream Washington idea. And this is a pleasant surprise that they are thinking in a little different way, a little more individually, a little bit of their town, of their city, and uh, they're organizing it differently. So that's, that's a good, good news, good thing. And we should really pay attention to what one can thoughtfully and emotionally going into themselves, using their own head, can do in a crisis like that. So I think coronavirus could be an enormous opportunity if we look at it psychologically, if we look at it, that it has come to um, give us some guidance and as a friend, not as an enemy. But even the, even the rhetoric is so, so difficult. And that's why so few Ewingians in this country. 
But it's kind of hopeful to see that even even at my age, I'm still practicing with small practice. I said, as long as people come, I'll practice as long as I can. And it's, it's hopeful to see that some people still seek out a union because they, even an individual, even one out of a million, is hopeful. Oh, I'm, I'm, I just turned 84. <laughs> well, I still write and I still cook. And thank goodness that I, uh, I had major illnesses. I had a heart attack uh, when I was 58. At the same age, my mother died. I knew I was going to die, but modern medicine uh, kept me alive, and I'm very grateful. And I took care of myself since then. I cut down my practice, and I... The reason I have to tell you briefly, if you have time, uh, the reason I write fiction has to do with my being alive. Uh, when I was 13 or so, I read into a book. My mother kept her novels under lock and key. She didn't think I, we should read it until we were grown up. But as usual, I found a way to steal her key and take out the novels and read them under my class <laughs> geography books or history books. So anyway, at 13, uh, I was I think I was ready to read novels. And I read a book, it was not a novel, and I was mesmerized by the language, by the way it was written. It was written by a famous writer. And I told myself, I have to write like this. And I, I knew at that time, I think that was the self, again, was speaking through me. I had to be a fiction writer. I had to be a creative writer. Of course, I wrote a lot in my life. But what happened since then, of course, I went into college and I did well and I got distracted into the academic world. And I forgot that I promised myself that I'd be a fiction writer. So when I had my heart attack, the surgeon told me that if you did not come, I was in the hospital for a checkup and it happened. They could do an emergency surgery. He said in, well, within a month, you would be dead. The damage was so extensive. And so I thought, okay. And then my recovery took me two months in bed. I was completely without any energy. So I couldn't read. I could not even listen to music. So only thing I could do is look at the ceiling and thought. So I thought, okay, why didn't I die? If it was, it was so bad, I could have been dead. Why did I not die? So, because being a questioning type all my life, I asked the question, and suddenly it came as a flash to me. Oh, it must be the only reason I'm alive today because I did not fulfill a promise I made to myself. Mm-hmm. And that came to me, like out of nowhere, came out from the unconscious, mm-hmm. from the memory. And I knew it was right because it could not have, I could not, I never thought of it all these years. And so it could be, must be right. So once I got that idea, I knew that I have to do it. So once I got better, after two months, I cut down my practice. I had a little condominium in Boston where I was practicing in both places where I lived in outskirts. And I sold it with a loss because I wanted to change everything. I cut down it to one quarter. And so... So I kept, I knew that it's important for me to do it. And I took 20 or so classes at Harvard Extension with some good writers uh, in creative writing to see if it is really, I could do it. Of course, now I have to do it in English 
but that's what I was using. And this all told me that, you know, you have it. You have it, so try it. Of course, then it's the practice. So I started writing. And, of course, I didn't show anybody. I could do it much more easily in my mother tongue, so I started first with the mother tongue. I always kept that language, so I did both. And it took me about 20 years or so before I could show it to a publisher. And, of course, that's... So I did not... Not that I'm a you know great fiction writer, but it gives me pleasure. I enjoy it. I enjoy it more than writing nonfiction. So... That's and in, in fact, Len wrote me a letter <laughs> a few days ago after a couple of years that he would reconsider looking at my fiction, and maybe they, they would be the first one to publish it, perhaps in English. I did have a few stories published in different journals, so I knew it was right because I could not have done it otherwise. Tremendous amount of energy I put in to go to these classes at my age. I was already 60, but I I needed to do it, just like I needed to go to Zurich. So that was another, these are the two times I felt strongly how self works. And I said to my patients sometimes that, they said, how do I know that it's the self or not something, you know, wrong that is telling me what to do? I said, okay. I, I told them that you would know when it's really the self because you would not have any other choice. Mm-hmm. And something in you, it's a different kind of knowing. Something in you, even though it's not practical, something inside you knows it is real and it is something you have to do. So for me, it was a matter of life and death. I think I would have been dead and I was lucky and I was lucky to be in America and to have the medical um advantage, even though it was quite a while ago, and now it's much more easier. They do, they're put in stand, they don't do the surgery. For me, it had to be surgery because it was so damaged. And it was an excruciatingly painful recovery. But I had to go through it like having this second life. So after all this painful journey that I had to do, I knew that I had to do something different. But that doesn't mean that I left the other side. So it sort of comes together. And in a way, I I know that even my nonfiction writing changed because of my fiction writing. It's it's much more easy going now. I always was struggling. I knew that fiction had to come back because I always was anti-jargon, and I never liked even my papers um, that I wrote as students. I was struggling with it. Something in me was working against it. So I knew that I was born, I was supposed to live. I didn't think I would live this long, but I was supposed to live to fulfill another duty, which was that. And see, at 13, age 13, the self spoke that I had to remember that. And I got distracted, which was okay, but then I paid a very high price to come back. I have a Bengali novel, and which I don't know whether I have energy to translate it. Of course, there's another interesting topic. I translated. You can. You don't translate yourself. I tried. Um, the memoir, the My Four Homes, I wrote in Bengali first. But when I started translating, I found it impossible. So I had to write it. In a way, it's translation. Structure is the same. But it comes from 
another place. So it's very hard, and that gave me an example, uh, experience of translation. I could translate somebody else, but translating myself is almost impossible because I know both languages. So I I may, if I have energy, I don't know if I get brave enough, and if it's supposed to be, if it's in the stars, I may try the other, other novel, which is about an immigrant family here, an Indian family here, and their issues and problems, and how the young wife comes to herself. And that would be a very good example of what we are discussing all this hour about how she found her independence in the real sense. And she had to sacrifice a lot for an Indian woman to break a marriage and all that stuff. Partly, of course, it I brought in my own experience too. But somehow it had to be America for her to do it. So it would be interesting as an immigrant literature also, but I don't know whether I will have the energy to do it, but I thought of it sometimes. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'll see. It depends on how long I live <laughs> and how healthy I remain. My energy level, I have always been very energetic. My grandmother, mother, all the mother side, very energetic and very strong women. So I... I'm grateful, even though my mother and I never got along, but I'm grateful that I inherited her energy. And But I see it's going slowly, and every year is depleted. So I am not as energetic as I used to be. Still, I do more than most people my age. If this uh, conversation uh, becomes helpful to some people, I'll be grateful, but I'll never know. But I hope it will be please visit the website speakingofyung, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts, or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Steve Buser and Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>